Hello, and welcome to the 39th episode of Catch Up on Kids Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jessica Gomez about social emotional intelligence and why it's so important to children's functioning and well being. Dr. Gomez is a clinical psychologist with over 17 years' experience working with children and families. She's the executive director of the Momentous Institute in Dallas, Texas, which provides mental health services to youth and their families and operates an elementary school which prioritizes mental health as much as academics. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, Janet. Thanks for having me here. Very excited to talk about mental health. Well, we're all about mental health in this podcast. I guess the logical place to start would be to ask you, what exactly is meant by the term social-emotional intelligence? Social-emotional intelligence, I mean, it's a term that we've heard for so many years, and there's so much science behind it. The way I defined it is really having an understanding and awareness of how our emotions work, how our behaviors work, and how that impacts the world around us, our ability to navigate relationships and our context. So I simplify it. My experience internally, and then how that comes out outwardly. Tell me why and how that is so important for children and how it can be different than a child's intelligent quotient, their academic kinds of skills. You know, I really see social emotional health, as we'll call it, and there, and some people call it other things, social social intelligence. It is the vehicle that really allows for academic success long term. You know, if you really want to educate the whole human, you really need to know not just math, arithmetic, art, and science. But if we don't know how we function in this body, we occupy our entire lives. Mm-hmm. How are we going to be successful? So. You, it, that's how I see it. it really enables for the academics to have long-term success because then you're a whole human, not just one that knows how to do one subject. Well, I guess children and adults function in the world with other humans and other in other social contexts. So they have to be able to translate that knowledge and awareness to something that's a little bit more communal. You're absolutely right, Janet. And if we go back to that term you said, communal, We're wired to be in connection with each other. And that is what keeps us healthy. We don't function well in isolation. Now, that's not to say that we have to be connected all the time, but our relationships are really what nourish us, what our brain looks for. We are social beings at our core. I agree with that. Now, tell me a little bit. We have an understanding at a basic level of how we teach children to read and write and how we teach them about math. But how do you teach? social emotional health? That's a really good question. We teach social emotional health by starting with not just acknowledging that it's not just checking the box, Janet, because it's easy to do that. Let's just breathe five minutes during the day and then maybe we'll talk about the brain for five other minutes. It starts with the culture we build at our school um, and making sure that the adults are part of this equation. So if we talk about relationships, right, that is the way you're going to instill this. So taking care of the adults, making sure that the adults embody this way of being, paying attention to, gosh, maybe the adult, the educator that's coming into the classroom today, they had a rough start to the day. And so if they have an awareness that that's going to come up 
kids, and we know that the brain picks up on this within seconds before just by scanning the person. We call that that right brain to right brain connection. So it starts with the adults and making sure that they understand social emotional health and the neuroscience of relationships and how that comes in. Once you have that, you can really build it into the culture of how children are treated, how their behaviors are seen, how their engagement or lack thereof is managed. And that's how you start to build it. And then, of course, it comes down to the skills, right, of learning, of the neuroscience of breathing, of friendship, how to develop friendship skills, of how to calm down when I see that really hard math problem. So I'm talking about two prongs here. It's the culture in which the children are coming into that has to really sustain this way of seeing things. And then there's the practical. And for instance, how explicit would the teacher be about her experience and their experience? Is this something that's kind of in the air or is this explicitly taught in terms of language, how to understand what you're seeing or what you're understanding about your teacher's mood or her way of behaving and what you're understanding about yourself? I love that question. I think we want to be authentic within boundaries, right? So we don't have to get into the details with our children. So it depends on the age of the student. It's going to be different for elementary than high school. Listen, I didn't get the best sleep last night. So if you notice I'm a little bit, you know, (laughs) distracted today, know that I just didn't get a good night's sleep, right? Versus really getting into the details of it. Or a child feeling the the trust and comfort to tell their teacher, you know, I saw something scary and I didn't sleep all night. Ah, so that's going to give me, we give our children at Momentous School that language to be able to talk about their experience. And when you say, like, how do we start this? In pre-K three, our children are learning about their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex. I didn't learn about that till graduate school. It would have saved me a lot of, you know, just challenges. And so we believe that we need to start talking about emotions, mental health, and the structures of our brain, all those things as young as possible in a way that is developmentally appropriate. Well, that makes sense. And I think, uh, as you say, adults can certainly validate children's experiences, validate their perceptions in a way that's very meaningful and makes them feel that they're oriented and organized and smart without, as you say, going into the specifics of whatever problem or difficulty they're they're managing. Well, Janet, I believe that that models for our children that adults don't have it figured out. We're humans as well. And so sometimes versus explicitly teaching it, oh, oh, Miss Jessica today, you know, didn't think that through or, you know. So that's part of the modeling and teachable moments that I think brings it to life versus just a checkbox technique, because that's my worry that that we distill social, emotional health and learning to a technique that you pick up off of the shelf versus a way of being. Well, I think I agree with that entirely. Now, what might complicate things, I'm wondering, is if you have children at the school who are being taught and being introduced to these ideas and they're thinking about them and expressing them and conversing them with one another, what role do the parents have and how do you manage that if the parents are a little bit challenged themselves on that on that front? Parents are the key ambassadors to really making sure that anything we teach around mental health or social emotional health 
takes root and it's sustained in a family system. At Momentous School, we do that by engaging parents, making sure that they're learning the same concepts as the children. Are they really? Absolutely. So, and we do that kind of, so we started off as mental health providers first, a mental health center. And then 40 years ago, we said, what would happen if we started a school that took all these lessons learned and put them into an elementary school if we just swam further upstream? Could we prevent some of the things we're seeing in our outpatient center? And so the answer to that is yes, sometimes it buffers it. And then of course, there's some children that are more predisposed, but I mentioned that because just like with therapy, when we say, you're not just going to come drop your child off here and we're going to fix them. You're part of the solution. You know your child better than anyone. That's the same thing we have at Momentous School. We tell our parents, if you're bringing your child here, they learn all the academics, but they're also going to learn about social emotional health. And you have the opportunity to learn it too, because we need you. You're our partner in this. And so they learn it in different forms, whether we're sending them newsletters, information, books, that we have parent chats um, monthly with the principal that focuses on different topics around this. Um, We have a parent engagement group and they bring up topics around social emotional health that they want to learn about. So it's absolutely parents are critical if you're going to drive this message home. And I think that's where we've seen some of the splits of what's going on when we don't engage our parents. It's an opportunity for misunderstanding. Well, I, I mean, the same rules apply when you're doing child therapy, that you you run into an awful lot of difficulties if you're not spending as much time or significant enough time with parents, letting them understand what's going on in the context of therapy and in the context of the therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. They're the biggest ambassador and key to sustaining change. Is it an explicit part of the contract when they bring their children to school that they will participate at some level? At some level, absolutely. But there is an explicit understanding that your child, if they choose to come to Momentous School, there will be an equal emphasis on academics and social emotional health. And we define that for them like we started at the top of our conversation. Here's what it is. Here's what it'll look like in the curriculum. Equal emphasis, but never at the cost of, we really see these two as complementary focuses in our school. So most of our parents here, I would say 100% of them, come to our school because they want their children to develop equally and as a whole person. So they're primed. Yeah, it makes sense. They're not a random selection. They're they 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 they've They've signed up eagerly and they know what they they've signed up for. Okay. So what happens when you have situations where there are conflicts within the school and the school environment within the the children's classroom, what would be an approach that Momentus would take that might be a little bit different than the approach that might just happen at at other schools where the children are identified, uh, perhaps they are brought into the principal's office, perhaps they're lectured to, perhaps one of them is found to be the good guy or the bad guy and somebody's punished. What would be an example of how Momentus might deal with that? That's a great question. And one that our parents ask us from the beginning when they come here, what's different about you all? And so we are really going to be curious, curiosity, when a 
I don't even want to call it misbehavior, but when a behavior doesn't align with our expectations of what the, what might be expected in the day, um, so versus going towards something with the assumption, um, we're going to be curious with our students and say, I wonder why you're, you know, maybe you pushed your friend, you know, what's going on or what happened and pulling the two children together versus many schools have a zero kind of tolerance for bullying right? And we see this as developmentally. And, and I want to also talk to, there's an extent, right? We want to make sure children are always safe. So if there are children getting hurt, then of course, we'll take action to protect, protect all children involved. But with bullying, for instance, there's zero tolerance in schools. At Momentous School, what we're going to do is we're going to be curious what might be happening. What age are they? Oh, it's third grade. Well, that tends to be when our social skills need to get a little bit more sophisticated and we're still testing stuff out. And some kids might be further along if they have siblings or opportunities to practice, while others may not. This is also the time we're starting to see sometimes learning differences or mental health issues start to emerge a little bit in children. So we we take a systemic view of what might be happening. And now we're blessed at Momentous School because it's not just the educators, but we have a team of therapists that will sit down and talk about what's going on with the child. But versus going towards it punitively and being sent to the principal's office because you're in trouble, the educator really sits with the children that are involved in a situation and tries to figure out what's going on, what may have happened, and tries to repair it and help the children repair it and cause a teachable moment. So that's a little bit of a difference in how we, um, which can be different for many of our parents that are coming from traditional school settings if they've transferred over, because it can be frustrating. Why is there no penalty? We see those as teachable moments. And then we bring in different groups into each of the grades because we know kiddos need to be equipped with these skills more than ever right now um, so that we can prevent further issues. We start some of those, we call them social skills groups. Um, at every grade level so that they can practice these skills. We don't get taught how to be good friends. Some of us are blessed and get it at home, but for the most part, we're not explicit about that. Why are we not about boundaries, about healthy relationships? So that was my long-winded answer to your question, Janet, around- No, it was an, it was an important answer with a, with a lot of really, really good information. And following along on that, if you have children in the school, I don't know whether you do or not, but if you have children who have ADHD or children who are on the spectrum, who are challenged in those kinds of ways, is that something that other children are made aware of or that they that they understand individual differences that will allow them to make certain allowances or or have certain expectations that one child might have more difficulty sitting still or might have more difficulty with impulse control than another. It depends on the child, right? And the situation. The first thing that we are going to assess is whether we are the best environment for the child, depending on their learning style, their learning difference, their history, whatever that might be. So we treat every child as a unique individual that they are and collaborate with the parents to make sure, does this align with your goals? And in the occasion that it is determined that we aren't the perfect setting, that's a collaborative decision that happens. But when it is a child that might have ADHD and they need some movement, we know that humans weren't designed to sit for eight hours at a time, or maybe Jessica wasn't, right? Um, <laughs> so our classrooms are designed so that children, with neuroscience in mind, that children, so their chairs allow them to get stimulation and they can sit and wiggle. So some of our friends, we know, and in a classroom, it's not rare to have a friend as we'll say, or one of our students 
that needs to walk around and be more of a helper. Our children learn from pre-K to ask for a brain break, which means I need a brain break. We have a sensory wall um, where our children can run their hand up against the wall because we know that the brain needs that input sometimes to kind of regulate. The classrooms are also designed with lots of color to stimulate with green space access and light that comes in because we're trying to set up, we've designed the school with neuroscience in mind and the furniture that's picked out. So if it really, we can accommodate and tailor the environment to each child within you know, limits as well. If a child needs to be sitting in a swing for more occupational stimulation, like OT, we're not set up for that. But. No, no, I understand that. But but you're saying that you are making very specific individual differences and allowances for those different temperaments or different needs that the children have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we understand that. And our classroom size is smaller as well. So we are at 16 children per classroom um, with one teacher, which allows for more individualized experience and the children to really get to know each other as well. So we are blessed in that, but absolutely, we will individualize depending on the child and within the curriculum that we can teach. So if that includes movement, if that includes having to go see a therapist during the day because they need to talk through some of the issues they might be navigating, we will make those adjustments and accommodations. And that is that something that you provide within the school environment that that, that a child might have individual psychotherapy? Absolutely. With parent consent, and if it's determined by the school and, of course, our our therapy team, they work very closely together. So we have a team of about 30 clinicians, and we have pre-K three to fifth grade, two classes per grade level. And we do case consultations once a month where our teachers and school admin and a core team of therapists will sit down. And it's an opportunity for teachers to come in and say, hey, I'm struggling with this student. This is what's happening. And they sit down and do kind of like a grand rounds to determine. And the teacher will get tips on try this and this and this, and then come back next month and see if any of that's worked. And after they try certain interventions, if we're not seeing the progress and the child really excelling where they need to, we might come to the conclusion of maybe we need to do an assessment. And then our team would do that, a psychological assessment. Is there a learning difference? Is there trauma? Is there depression, et cetera? Or let's start with therapy. And then we work with the family to make sure they understand that. And then the family has the option of bringing them to our centers during the time they can, or the therapist walking over to the school during a time that doesn't impact their learning, brings them to the therapy office and then drops them back. You must be the envy of every school in the state. I I, I just having those resources at your fingertips is remarkable. We are very blessed. And someone yesterday said, I've come to work at the utopia. And so to be able to work in a way that really helps children thrive and clients that come for our mental health services to also um, heal, it's very rare. Very, very rare and very special. Could we just uh, talk a little bit explicitly about how social emotional health affects learning and success how it actually is important within an academic skill building environment that's a big question janet but an important one 
So what we know about emotions, right? We like to use a metaphor that our children utilize a lot. It comes from um, Dr. Dan Siegel, you know, the brain model. Yes. And yes. when our emotions are overwhelming, that prefrontal cortex or the CEO of the brain, it can't learn. That's that's the part that children need in order to learn. And then the memory centers of the brain, the hippocampus, right? It, it needs to be well. So it needs to, of course, sleep well. It needs to eat well. It needs to have enough movement to be healthy. But on top of that, if a child is depressed, if they're anxious, if they're living with adverse community situations or event and there's trauma in their life, that starts to impact the brain as we call it being online. So you can teach all the math you want, but it's not it's not going to go through the brain in the ways that it needs to, to consolidate that information and for the child to be able to pull it later on. So when we talk about social emotional health, why do you want to start that early on? You want to build that in children as early on because it's kind of like running that marathon. If you build those muscles, when the stressors of life come, your hope is it helps to buffer the effect of that. Because many of the children that come to our school have multiple ACEs already. So we know that they are predisposed. We know the science on adverse childhood experiences. Um, so it's important with learning social emotional health because it almost is like it opens up the highway. I love this metaphor I heard from a researcher that said the brain is kind of like a Ferrari, right? But if you put it on gravel, it can't take off. Social emotional health I see it as like that super highway that really sets up the road for children to be able to learn as best as possible. So it's almost a precondition. I think for all humans. Yeah, yes, yes. For all humans. But, but also in this context, a precondition for academic success in order to absorb the material, integrate the material, process the material, and have it accessible be able in to long-term memory. It. And, and apply, of course, and apply yes. it. And, and when you look at every outcome, the research is fascinating of people who are successful or not successful. It's those people that have social, emotional health that have those relationships, positive. Really. Think about the people in your life who you want to be around. So it is critical to learning. It, it's almost a prerequisite, as you said, to learning and learning well. Tell me a little bit about the outcomes for the children. I'm assuming, rightly or wrongly, that you're doing some research uh, associated with your great academic experiment, uh, your laboratory school. Tell us about that. Is there Where are you in that? So we have a saying at Momentus Institute that we measure what we value. And we believe in what we do. We know it in our gut to begin with and in our heart, but you need the science as well to measure it. And so I'll start with parent engagement, right? Because I said they're the biggest ambassadors. So this is something that schools have not figured out. 95% of our parents, as we measured last year, and I'm going to try to remember these facts, reported being highly engaged in their children's education and feeling a part of the community. So that's an important part. Parents feel heard and part of their child's learning. Our children, not only we look at, we utilize low income because 85% of our children at our at admission qualify for free and reduced lunch, which the research term is low income, right? Our children, when they graduate fifth grade, are outperforming in every, from math to reading to science, children, not just in the low income category in Dallas County, in Texas, or the country, they're outperforming them compared to children who are in high incomes as well. So we've wow. closed that gap. 
But then, okay, so they leave me in fifth grade. What happens to them in middle school? We track them through middle school and through high school. They have higher graduation rates. It's in the 90s. I can't, I don't know the exact number. Um, When we see the state of Texas is lagging behind in those outcomes. But not only that, do they graduate from high school, they can read because we have a lot of graduates who are leaving and can't read. Then they get into college. Now, for our children who come from very diverse communities, predominantly Latino, um, first generation, they not only get into college, but we're not seeing the issues that the rest of the country is seeing here, which is they don't persist and they end up with that. They persist and they get careers and they literally change the odds for children. And they're outperforming in every level, not just in low income, all the way up to high income. That's remarkable. Well, that is an enormous uh, compliment and a great achievement for for you and your team. Just to touch a little bit, just again, to be very explicit, you talked about the the students at the college level who are persisting. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the idea of resilience and how resilience relates to the topic of of, uh, social and emotional health. I'm going to take a deep breath there because I can hear the child, um, you know, they come back for scholarship opportunities. Um, and we're also our community, our club members, the Salesmanship Club of Dallas works very closely with us. They founded this organization in 1920, and many of them volunteer to be mentors for our children. They start as reading buddies from pre-K or kindergarten, excuse me, and they read with them once a week for 30 minutes. Why is that? Relationship and reading out loud literacy, we know it develops parts of the brain and reading. But then they follow them through mentorship. And our kids will come back every year when they get into college and say, the one thing that got me through this or that was remembering my brain, remembering to breathe, remembering to have positive relationships and picking people well that are champions in my life. And so when we talk about resilience, we started early and it persists and they leave us in fifth grade. And by the time they get to college, And this is the first time they're ever out of their community, first person in their lives to go to college. They say that learning those basics set them up for long-term success, even when adversity comes their way. And so they say it to us every single time. And they're like, I still remember my hand model and I flipped my lid when I got in front of that, you know, state exam. So I think that it's setting them up because stress is part of life, change and adversity, I wish I could protect all our children from that, but we can't. But the best thing we could do is set them up to be able to thrive um, and bounce back. Right, right. Well, I'm very grateful for this conversation. I think you've made the case very clearly and very well for us and very strongly of what those connections are between community and social, emotional and health, between success and resilience. And I thank you very much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Janet, for your time and for elevating this conversation. Dr. Gomez really outlined a wonderful, very inclusive, very thorough program of learning for children that includes social and emotional health as well as their academics. And obviously, this is a very special, very privileged school that has resources and teams of professionals at their disposal. But her point is so well taken. And I think that it is important that we understand that children really can't learn when they're distracted, when they're unhappy, when they're hungry, when they're tired, when they're not connected to other children and or to their teacher. And so that we all need to take time, 
to make explicit the things and the links between how we feel emotionally and how we behave, and also to help children quite explicitly to teach them about friendship, about negotiation, about forgiveness, so that they can participate more fully in their relationships and be freed up to learn and process the information that we're trying to teach them. That's it for this time. I'm Janet Morrison. Thanks for listening and please listen wherever you get your podcasts. 